Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Yes, it is about that time. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the podcast. Actually, on that note, while I said this week's, it kind of triggered a little bit of housekeeping um, for the podcast. Good to keep everyone updated. I've kind of decided to change the timing of this podcast to be a fortnightly podcast as opposed to a weekly podcast. You know, when I started this podcast, I was actually unemployed at the time, so... I had enough time on my hands to do a daily podcast if I wanted to. Uh, Thankfully, I was about to say unfortunately, thankfully, thankfully that situation has changed and I am no longer unemployed. However, the downside of having an income is that you have less time to devote to the podcast and well, that's partially true. I mean, I definitely have time probably to do it weekly. I probably don't have a time to do it weekly to a standard that I'm happy with. Um, like, you know, during the week and sometimes when I'm at work and stuff, like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm always like staying relatively up to date with things that are happening on the market and financial news and I, and I note stuff down that might be good topics to speak about. Um, so there's generally always something to speak about. Uh, it's just about um, making sure that I do enough you know, reading on the topics and thinking about how I feel about it before I start talking about it, those kind of things. And, you know, when I started to also study, not start, but I was in the middle of doing a degree last year as well, it became quite difficult to sort of manage both the things. But moving forward, I anticipate that I might be doing more study uh, and I anticipate that I'm going to keep my job. <laughs> I hope so. Um, so, yeah, I think I think on a fortnightly basis, it's going to be easier for me to manage uh, and hopefully go back to some sort of consistency of the podcast coming out, but on, not on a weekly basis, but on a fortnightly basis. Hopefully that makes sense. And thank you for tuning into this week's episode. This is, sorry, this fortnight's, I'm not going to stop saying this week's episode. Anyway, whatever. It's episode 60. You're listening to the Market Pulse podcast. It's been about two weeks since the last podcast. A fair bit has happened, which we're going to talk about. And I'll recap on what the markets did last week first, as we always like to do. So last week, the ASX 200 was up 1%. Uh, The S&P 500 over in the US was down almost 1%. It was down 0.97%. The NASDAQ down even further, down 1.86%. And generally in this podcast, I do like to start with macro stuff and it's kind of been a bit of the macro stuff that's been shaping the market over the last couple of weeks since we last spoke. Uh, Inflation is still a thing. You might be sick of hearing about inflation, but it's it's important in the sense that it is still having an impact on the way investors are thinking at the moment and commentary on markets and things like that. I don't think it's as important as it is being highlighted as such. But so I'm in the camp that it's a transitory effect, that it's, you know, a non-permanent. Uh, I'm not I'm not too worried about it, basically. It might tick up a little bit um, from the base that it was, but I don't think it's going to be some kind of... Basically, what I'm kind of tired, I'm, I'm somewhat tired of hearing of, you know, ca- comparisons to... 
uh, Weimark Germany, you know, the famous comparisons of like Zimbabwe and things like this, like these hyperinflation examples where suddenly your money becomes worthless and you're, you're carting around a wheelbarrow full of cash to buy something. I think that kind of concern is stupid. But inflation is still a hot topic. Uh, a bit of oil, like OPEC-related um, macro stuff is still in the in the news and on the concern of markets and, and probably the other one that's coming back, uh, not that it ever went away, but it kind of felt like it went away from a market's point of view because we started to really be really fixated on just the future and getting out of it, which is COVID and the pandemic and the fact that there is a new strain that's starting to, uh, you know, cause a bit of damage around the world. And we, and we see that here in Australia uh, when we last did the podcast, the New South Wales government was just about to lock down. Obviously, New South Wales in lockdown now, especially Sydney, greater Sydney area. Uh, Victoria going into a lockdown. Uh, I'm in Queensland and southeast Queensland has had a bit of a lockdown. Uh, it's sort of eased a bit now. We still have mask mandates. South Australia, as, as I'm recording this on a Monday night, it's Monday the 19th of July, they're going into it. And it's all to do with this new strain which appears quite infectious in and very easy to spread around and that is you know relatively important for a country like us that's basically not vaccinated or like such a small amount of our population is vaccinated uh, compared to some other major western countries uh, like in Europe and the United States so that's certainly playing a bit of a role in the market you saw some you know you saw some interesting impacts when like Sydney sort of finally decided it was going to properly go into the lockdown. You know, you saw impacts to the travel sector, um, which is relatively self-explanatory. You saw some of the stocks that have done quite well because of COVID jump back up in this anticipation that, you know, perhaps they're, if, you know, if we do go back into a, even just a little bit of a lockdown, maybe they will continue to do a bit well over that period of time. Like, you know, the stuff like Domino's, yeah, some of the retail stocks, especially the online orientated ones. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind of. But I'm going to talk about the macro stuff first. Uh, probably one of the interesting things for me, at least, is obviously still following the employment market. And again, you know, relating this all back to COVID, just the impact that uh, the pandemic has had on the way just life has changed in Australia especially while it's, you know, it's more or less fortress Australia in that people are not coming in. So this was a couple of weeks ago, it goes back to July 1st, so it's probably more like three weeks ago, uh, but uh, the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, reported that uh, job vacancies actually surged to a record high, um, reporting that companies uh, struggling to find workers. So there's a report here from Reuters, saying job vacancies in Australia hit record highs in the May quarter to be 57% above pre-pandemic levels. A further little stat nugget here from the Reuters article saying that uh, the amount of vacancies uh, in February, so around the sort of February period this year compared to February the year prior, was about 132,000 more vacancies than the year prior. So very significant. And on a related note, more recently, in the last couple of days, we actually had updated uh, employment data, so the unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate continued to fall. It actually fell down to 4.9% uh, in the previous 
period, it was 5.1%. And there's a couple of things at play there in regards to the job vacancies and then the unemployment rate. So going back to the Fortress Australia idea, you know, we are seeing the impact of what, you know, basically no migration causes in our country where normally employers and companies and businesses would have access to a relatively steady stream of workers coming into the country. They're struggling to find those workers at the moment because of the fact that we are not letting in migrant workers due to the pandemic. And that has caused, you know, not only uh, the quite a significant drop in the unemployment rate because, you know, they're going to have to take workers from somewhere. Uh, so more and more people are working now, uh, but also the amount of job vacancies, so the amount of uh, demand that's out there for empty roles, more or less. And this is kind of one of the stronger arguments behind the idea of inflation in that if you have you know, a lot of demand from the, the from companies and businesses for workers, uh, then workers, so people like you and I uh, have more choices, uh, we should be able to uh, negotiate uh, pay increases or better paying jobs, you know, or even if you're going to think about jumping to another firm, you could, uh, you know, you could debate that with your current employer and, and get them to pay you a bit more to stay. So this idea of increased wage growth, which again, we've talked about has been relatively non-existent in Australia for a long time, the idea that this comes back uh, and starts to help, you know, be a, uh, a push on uh, inflation in Australia. And staying on this topic of inflation, uh, you know, one of the reasons why the US market uh, last week was you know, a little bit uh, wishy-washy was the fact that uh, over in the US, the department, or the, sorry, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, released inflation data. So the, the headline's quite a bit alarming and, and it jumps out at you. So uh, prices, inflation or prices rise 5.4% uh, in June compared to a year prior. And this is the largest spike since 2008. And it is quite a, an alarming headline. Uh, but when you look into the details on what is driving that uh, inflation figures, it becomes a little bit less concerning, at least from my perspective, you know, on what's going on there. So, yeah, there's a couple things here that are worth pointing out. I took the, I was just reading the tweets of um, Heather Long, who's an economics correspondent with the Washington Post. She's quite a good follow if you're on Twitter. I, I like Heather Long. She um, talked about, so bottom line of inflation, June's 5.4% rise was the highest in 13 years. But a third of this, a third of it was from the use, from used car price surge, uh, which she said, which is likely to fade. Airfare, hotels, etc. also seeing price spikes that will also likely fade. So people, well, I guess her, she's opining that uh, those are transitory Impacts so the the fact that the used car market is price surging uh, that's not a permanent you know, sustained uh, thing that's going to occur. So some of the big ones she points out. Uh, so here are the items really driving up inflation. So car rentals eighty seven point seven percent a year on year change. So that's over a year period. So car rentals that is eighty seven percent. Used cars up forty five percent. Gas is up forty five percent. That's pretty significant because that kind of impacts everyone. 
But then all those three um, are great examples of an economy reopening, you know, car rentals, people trying to get away, going back on holidays, you know, moving around a bit more, used car. The used car one's a little bit different. It probably has a little bit to do with the people wanting to get around a bit more um, coming out of the, you know, pandemic era. But as we've said, a lot of that comes from the fact that car manufacturers are struggling to actually keep up with demand, uh, make new vehicles due to a, a global semiconductor chip shortage. Uh, so that's their gas is another one. So gas prices, they say gas, we say petrol, whatever. Uh, that fell quite significantly uh, last year because the demand uh, fell. You know, and people weren't, no need to fill up your car if you can't go anywhere. But again, that's changing. You know, we're in the US summer at the moment. People are on holidays. People are moving around the country. A few other ones, interesting, laundry machines up 29%. Uh, airfares, 24%, kind of relates back to the travel stuff. Moving, as in like removalists, 17%. Hotels, 16%, 16.9% rather. Uh, furniture, 8.6%. So there's, there's a few jumps there. These are all year-on-year changes, by the way, not just the not just the jump in the June period, like when I said before the five point four percent overall inflation period. That was just for June. Those were year-on-year jumps. So they're they're the things that are really driving uh, inflation over the last twelve months. But it's not to say that there aren't definitely voices who are concerned about inflation. Probably a well-known one would be Larry or Lawrence Summers or Larry Summers, uh, who has been quite critical of Joe Biden over in the US in regards to his infrastructure package um, and also quite critical that it's only going to uh, be damaging from an inflationary point of view to the US economy. Uh, I I mean, I don't. Larry, Larry Summers, I was about to say that I disagree, but it feels weird because Larry Summers is a uh, Harvard uh, professor Larry Summers to me is the guy that was a chief architect in the uh, stimulus, stimulatory packages coming out of the global financial crisis under uh, Barack Obama in which, you know, it's become a bit more talked about these days, but it seems like that what, the, what they went to and what the effort that they went to back then was not nearly enough uh, in terms of the spending that they did back then to, you know, really lift people uh, not only just out of poverty, but back into jobs. Uh, so he's always, in my opinion, been like somewhat of a bit, bit of a hawk in the way that he views inflation. So part of me is kind of hopeful that like Biden doesn't listen to him, but apparently Biden had him over in the Oval Office uh, talking to this guy. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll keep following it on the podcast. No, it keeps being a topic that we keep bringing up, but, you know, it's really something that's being you know hotly debated at the moment uh if it turns out wrong i will i will just you know openly admit i was wrong here on the podcast how about that we're going to talk about some company and sort of market specific stuff we're going to focus on Australia. So on the last episode, episode 59, we mentioned the fact that uh, the trading platform in Australia, Stake, which is an Aussie trading platform, but it was set up to offer customers access to US markets. And it's kind of been one of the disruptors entering the, the trading space here in Australia in the last couple of years with a, a fairly different take on fee structures. You know, Stake 
specifically they don't actually charge brokerage fees, which you'd probably be quite familiar with with standard trading platforms. Uh, I know I am, uh, but they charge an FX fee because you're because you're uh, using stake to buy US uh, shares. Any kind of deposit and withdrawals uh, into foreign currency into the US dollar, uh, they do charge an FX fee. So that's kind of like the fee that they take from you for trading, so to speak. Uh, so it's not com- it's not completely free by any means, uh, but a pretty good pretty good option for those looking at US shares. And I mentioned that stake, which only offered its customers access to the US markets up until that point. They announced that they're going to be offering ASX trading later this year. But we don't really know the details on you know fees and all that kind of stuff. But in a very similar turn of events in the last week or so, another new you know, disruptor fintech player in the trading space, uh, Superhero, which we mentioned here going back a while ago when they first launched in Australia last year. Uh, you might have noticed their advertising around a bit more. Uh, I'm pretty sure I, I've seen them on even on TV uh, as well. Now, Superhero up until this point only offered ASX trading, um, but they're so doing the opposite of stake. They only do Australian-based shares, but now they're expanding to offering US stocks and also offering $0 brokerage on US trading, so just like Stake does. and But then, then again, they do charge an FX conversion fee You know when you convert Australian dollars to US stocks. And you know, it's worth mentioning what the FX fee is because although both these platforms tout free US trading, you know, it's always important to remember what the true cost is of what you're buying and selling because this can really erode you know, gains if you're uh, not aware of them. So, so with Superhero, which is a, a newer newer company than than Stake on the scene, Superhero, when it comes to ASX trading, they actually charge nothing if you're buying an ETF, so an exchange traded fund. Uh, you know, like a BlackRock one or a Vanguard, whatever beta shares. But if you're buying shares in directly in a company, so if you bought some Telstra shares doesn't matter how much you buy, you're charged a $5 flat fee with Superhero. Uh, with their new announcement in entering the US trading space, uh, like I said, they're touting a $0 brokerage. However, the FX fee is 50 basis points, which is fancy talk for 0.50%. So to break it down realistically, if you wanted to transfer 100 Australian dollars uh, using Superhero's US platform, you want to transfer 100 Australian dollars uh, to US dollars to get ready to buy some shares on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, you'd be charged 50 cents out of that 100 Australian dollars. Now, I mentioned stake is similar in that it doesn't charge you brokerage, but it does cost you an FX fee as well. It's 70 basis points or 70 cents for $100 that you transfer on the platform. So, uh, so at least in that comparison, a little bit more expensive than this new superhero uh, platform that's going to be offering US trading. Now, the reason I bring this up is it's kind of important to, again, I circle back to that. It's always important to consider the fees and charges you pay on your respective brokerage accounts because, as I just mentioned, this can you know erode your investment return. And it should just be taken into account because it, it occurs when you're buying as well as when you're selling. You know, secondly, I mentioned in episode 59, it does appear that our market is having a bit of a race to the bottom in respect to brokerage costs. You know, it does kind of lead me to believe that we'll continue down that path and end up in a system kind of like where the US is, where it's effectively just commission-free trading platforms left, right, and center. 
you know, and that kind of brings its own issues. You know, Robinhood in the US, probably the most famous zero brokerage platform over there. Maybe infamous is the right word, depending on your feelings about the company after everything with GameStop and AMC theaters shares and restricting the trading of these stocks. Uh, but as much as uh, aside from all that, Robinhood uh, helped bring down the cost overall of trading in the US and not because they offered it, but they also eventually forced larger, you know, more more well-known platforms that have been around for longer. Fidelity is a big one. Charles Schwab over in the US, it forced, they eventually lowered their, I believe they're both zero-dollar brokerage as well. So, you know, that's a good thing in the sense, you know, democratizing investing, giving people more choices than ever and you know, making it easier to access financial markets, to invest your money. I'm all for those you know, kind of positive things. The dark side of Robin Hood is exactly specifically how they make their money using this payment for order flow system where effectively Robin Hood sell trading data. So they sell trades and trading data um, to larger funds, investment funds, hedge funds. Um, and the, I mean, the simple reasoning is because they, they can then front run people's trades and make uh, money off uh, what, where, you know, we we as the masses are intending to do. And that's a little bit more relevant now than ever, ever because in related news, Robinhood themselves are actually going public. Uh, they've filed, the company itself has filed for an IPO. I found some quite interesting figures here in a Forbes article that really talked to this new wave of investors, you know, kind of since the pandemic started that we keep hearing about. And when I say new investors, mostly young investors as well, uh, you know, on this podcast, we've talked about the growth in, you know, trading accounts that our Australian trading platforms have experienced, like uh, SelfWealth, for example, has added a lot of new customers. Comsec have added a lot of new customers uh, from what we've heard in CBA's last update. Uh, so it's not just a trend in the States by any means, it's it's happened here as well. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, these figures are part of pre-IPO filings. Uh, so Robinhood, by the end of 2020, they had approximately 13 million users in the US. So that was towards the end of 2020. Uh, and that was obviously just about, just right before COVID was about to hit. Then the first two months of 2021, this is according to Forbes, they added 6 million new users. So in the first two months, so they effectively added you know, half of their existing base, they added an extra half uh, on in two months, which is kind of insanity. Uh, Forbes also were talking about the average account size uh, with Robinhood. So it's approximately $3,500 in the average account size, uh, which is quite a lot less compared to uh, established trading platforms in the US. So E-Trade over there, the average size is about 100K for an account, 240K for Charles Schwab. Uh, but it kind of shows that I was going to say it kind of sh- maybe shows that peeps um, it has those other platforms have some more sophisticated investors. I don't think that's the right word to be honest, but uh, let's say that some of those more traditional platforms probably have people who have been investing for a long longer time. I suppose is probably the right way to put that. Uh, and you know, Robinhood is much more attractive to someone who's young and starting out for the first time. And when you're young and starting out for the first time, you don't tend to have, you know, 250K to put into the market. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of gives you an idea of, you know, just how young uh, the and new 
the Robin Hood base is on from an average point of view. Elsewhere on the Australian markets, probably another big uh, point of movement in the last few weeks uh, relates to our buy now, pay later stocks, uh, specifically Afterpay and, and Zip. Um, and there's been a couple of news about that, um, different parts of news, you know, both good and bad in terms of the share price movement. Uh, firstly, there's been a bit more about you know, PayPal, which we know about entering into the buy now, pay later space. I don't know if you guys use PayPal. I actually do use PayPal and I noticed for the first time actually a few weeks ago that when I went to pay for something, it gave me the option of like a, a buy now, pay later option where it says that I can instead make a buy, you know, pay in four installments as opposed to paying for the whole thing that I was about to purchase. Uh, but on the similar note, um, a reporting came out from Bloomberg that said Apple, um, the tech company out of the US, Apple is going to, or they're interested in entering that buy now, pay later space as well uh, for Apple Pay uh, to help sort of, you know, they see the popularity of, you know, buy now, pay later among younger users, uh, increase, you know, adoption of Apple Pay amongst, you know, iPhone users to, you know, help, you know, increase the, the amount that they're going to use their phone to pay for stuff um, through the Apple system. Uh, because, you know, they, of course, Apple themselves receive a, a tiny cut out of any transactions that do go through Apple Pay. So it's it's in their uh, interest to get people to pay using the phone. So if they can, you know, add more functionality, if they can add the uh, the fact that they can pay in installments like a buy now, pay later product, you know, then, you know, it makes sense that that should hopefully uh, uptick the actual use of Apple Pay. Uh, and apparently they're going to have a couple of versions. So they're going to have a standard um, you know, pay for something in four installments, like a like a zip and an afterpay kind of style thing, um, and then they've got a and you know no uh, paying no interest as well, just like the buy now pay later's. Uh, but then they'll have one where you can pay for something and then pick just monthly installments to pay it off, where you actually are charged interest, so kind of like a loan in that way. Um, and if you think like how does Apple do that? But Apple have so much cash in the bank, they, they're they much bigger than any bank in that way. So, uh, you know, so yesterday, oh, sorry, let me go back, not yesterday, uh, the other week, uh, basically there was a lot of pressure, downward pressure on the afterpay share price and the zip, well, pretty much across the, the buy now, pay laters in general, but the two big ones, afterpay and zip, um, just uh, off, I guess off the reaction that uh, Apple was going to be entering this space as well. And this was always kind of like the, you know, going back a couple of years ago, the biggest uh, talked about threat to the buy now, pay laters in this space was, you know, eventually the big boys are going to join the game as well. And, and we've started to see over the last 12 months, uh, PayPal joining now Apple. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not to be surprised, I guess. I guess it adds some legitimacy to the area if you're an investor. Uh, for full disclosure, I'm an investor in Zip, so not a recommendation, but... Um, yeah, I'll be continuing to watch that because both these companies are, are, are almost due or about to be entering a reporting season. So uh, both these companies, as part of all the companies on the ASX, will be giving updates on how they're performing and you know how many new customers they're adding. So that'll be something to keep an eye on. Probably the other thing that caught my attention as well was this uh, bid for Sydney Airport. And I mean, it, it sort of happened over the last week or so, but more recently... Uh, on, I think it was on Friday last week or Thursday, Sydney Airport actually rejected a, a bid. So I'll, I'll step back once to 
uh, make some sense of all this. So basically, Sydney Airport listed on the ASX, they actually had a takeover offer bid from a group of investors, um, some infrastructure investors, Q Super, one of the super funds in Australia, was part of this uh, group looking to offer a buyout. Uh, it was... Uh, it says oh, the, the article said 17 but that's US dollars so Australian 22.26 billion dollars Australian to take over completely the Sydney Airport Holdings uh, company uh, and Sydney Airport quite a quite a well-known and, and famous uh, stock very I've you know when I used to work for uh, one of the stockbrokers it was something that you'd always seen people's portfolios as, as an income play because Generally, didn't see too much growth in the share price of a Sydney Airport, but they were pretty good dividend yield play. Uh, and but they've actually the board of Sydney Airport have rejected this offer. Uh, they more or less think that it's an undervalued offer. Um, but what they did for the Sydney Airport share price, though, um, because the offer came in you know, based on what they were the amount that they're offering, it came into a valuation of about eight dollars twenty-five uh, cents a share. Uh, so the Sydney Airport share price shot up as companies always do when these kind of offers come in but now it's being rejected uh the market seems to be somewhat expecting that there might be a further offer maybe a bigger offer there's talk also that uh there are other players that are also sniffing around potentially looking to make an offer macquarie is one that's been talked about um you know again in a similar way of using like a group of investors maybe engaging some you know, international funds or super funds uh, for a bit of a infrastructure play here on Sydney Airport. You know, what that would mean to you if you're a shareholder in Sydney Airport? Well, you know, because sometimes people, when this kind of stuff happens, they say, oh, should I take, should I just, you know, because the share price jumps up. So say if, you know, they come in and say, oh, we, we'll offer you $9 a share. The share price will often jump up to that price. Well, it will pretty much um, in anticipation that the, share, the, the offer will be accepted. If it's not accepted, at least it's somewhat of a sign that they're, they're offering or they're saying that we think it's valued at this, so it's at least worth this. So it's generally a good thing. But it kind of just means that, you know, if you're happy with that, you could technically just sell your shares right there and then on the market like a normal sale or sell, sell it for that, that price on the market. Uh, if you waited though and, and the actual takeover came through, uh, whatever the deal was for, so say if it was $9 a share, uh, that would eventually your shares would be sold for that amount or bought for that amount. Um, and so you would just get a cash settlement after the takeover goes through into your bank account because effectively this particular offer that came through wouldn't be keeping Sydney Airport on the market as an ASX listed entity. Uh, it would be you know, privately then owning it by this consortium of, of um, like I said, there were some infrastructure players, some super funds. I think Unisuper was the other one that was part of this offer. It wasn't just QSuper. Yeah, in terms of what it means for your personal circumstances if you're invested, I guess if you think it's a fair price and you're happy to get out at that point, then just take it. If you're willing to just sort of wait and see, maybe other offers will come through. Maybe you just kind of just want to hold it and, you know, not that they're paying much of a dividend now anyway, <laughs> given the pandemic, but if you want to hold it and wait and see, then yeah, do so. Um, but I don't think it's a bad thing that's happening. At least there's a couple different people fighting over potentially buying out your company. So it's helped drive your share price up. So you should be pretty happy about that. And on that note, that is it for episode 60. Thank you so much for tuning into the Market Pulse podcast. As I always say, if you do have questions for the show, you can shoot those through to our Gmail 
account. It is marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. Even if you don't have any questions, you have some suggestions or topics that you want to hear a little bit more about, you can just ask away and I'll see. I will decide if I want to talk about that or not. No, you can ask. It's okay. And especially if something doesn't make sense, you can especially ask. But uh, thank you again for tuning in. My name is Dion. This is the Market Pulse Podcast. Like I said at the top of the show, we're going to be moving to a fortnightly style podcast now. So I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, if you are in those lockdown areas, I do feel for you. Stay safe. Stay sane. Like it probably is the, is the right thing to say. Uh, and I will see you on the next episode. Cheers.